Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. All right. Well, let's kick this off. Uh, welcome to Wednesday Night Networking. Thanks to everybody for showing up tonight. Uh, tonight's topic is going to be regenerative grain farming. And uh, I am probably the last person to actually know anything about this because I'm not a grain farmer at all. But I think it's a very important topic and uh, um, it was actually requested. So definitely we're going to, you know, try and get get this uh information out to people. Um, tonight we got Brendan Rocky here to join us and he's a, uh, a crop farmer, I'm going to call him, uh, from uh, Colorado and I'm going to let him introduce himself in a little bit. But first a little bit of housekeeping. Um, we're going to talk about uh, what, why we're doing this to begin with. Um, when this conference season started we were lacking in uh, the human aspect of the conferences. Uh, I'd do a conference and I wouldn't be able to see who's on the other side of the screen. I didn't know who was there asking questions and it was just the, the, the human contact was missing. So we decided to start up this Wednesday night networking and that's all it is, is just questions and answers and, and chatting. So uh, thank you to everybody who's coming and, and to make it such a success, we've had some really uh, uh, good turnouts and um, we are thankful to a couple of sponsors. Um, tonight, we've got the Gateway Research Organization, and I'm supposed to be sharing my screen. I'm going to do that this time before I do that. Uh, and the Gray Wooded Forge Association, uh, two of our sponsors here tonight. Um, they are applied research or forage and applied research associations in the province of Alberta. They're not for profit, and they do extension and, and research and bring in speakers and put on conferences, and they do all sorts of uh, um, great things for our industry. And I'm very grateful for them. I've been involved with them for over 20 years and get credit a lot of my uh, knowledge you know, and education to them over the last uh, quite, a, quite a while. So, all right. And a real big thanks to both Gateway Research Organization and Gray Wooded Forge Association. And I guess the other sponsors is Greener Pastures because that's, you know, we're, we're doing this and, and uh, uh, basically just because we feel it's really important to keep this networking going. Uh, regenerative agriculture is growing and we're not going to let some virus stop us from, you know, networking and visiting and chatting because that's, that's the important part. So, all right. Well, tonight's topic is uh, regenerative agriculture, uh, re regenerative grain crop farming, more or less. Now, I'm like I said, I'm not a grain farmer. Uh, I'm I am quite passionate about it, though, because I think that's a part of our industry that we really need to get to the table. Um, you know what? There's a lot of people in regenerative agriculture who are grazing cows and, and uh, you know, pasture managers. And I mean, that's kind of easy to be regenerative in that. Uh, it is a lot harder to be a regenerative crop farmer. I, I, I will admit it. Um, but that is something that I, I feel strongly about. We really need to get the, the grain, you know, the crop side of that, uh, this industry to the table to at least look at this. So um, years ago, I met Brendan Rocky at a conference uh, in Montana. Um, I got sent down there and all of a sudden I was doing this talk on regenerative grazing and there was this uh, potato farmer doing a talk. And I'm thinking, whoa, what, how is this ever going to coincide? Um, I mean, you know, that just doesn't sound like it's going to mix very well at all. And, and honestly, it was the best presentation I had seen in years. Uh, Brendan considers himself a biotic farmer. He's building soil, growing, using cover crops. And I'm going to let him obviously explain a little more about that. But I was very impressed at Brendan's presentation. I actually have a, a version of, or a, uh, a link to his presentation at the Western Canadian Soils and Grazing Conference from 2019. It's on my Facebook page. Um, I'll put a link in chat here in a little bit. And uh, it's on 
day one in the afternoon. And it's a fantastic presentation. Uh, I recommend everybody to go, go watch it. It's about an hour long, I think, right, Brendan? Uh, maybe even an hour and a half. Hour and a half, yeah, yeah, yeah. well worth your time. A great presentation. So um, tonight we also got uh, Clay Connery from uh, Working Cows Podcast as our host. We'll just call him Amber all night. He, he's <laughs> just about as pretty, I think. Uh, oh, I shouldn't say that. She might be listening. <laughs> I've been called worse, so we're, we're good. <laughs> okay, Clay, give me give me a little uh, heads up about your podcast. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, we just, uh, the tagline is providing producers a platform to discuss and share paradigm challenging practices. So we're just giving people who are doing out of the box things, a place to come and share their story and how they got started doing it and why they're doing it. And um, we talk about the four pillars of the ranching operation, land, animals, people, and cows and, uh, or, and money, sorry, land, animals, people, and money, and uh, how we manage all of those things so that our relationships with them are stronger after our investment of management than they were before our investment of management. So, Excellent. Yeah. Highly recommend you going to, to see uh, Working Cows podcast as well. So, um, Brendan, do you want to kick this off? Tell us a little bit about yourself and what, what do you consider regenerative uh, crop farming or regenerative agriculture from your point of view? So, yeah, sure. I'll just give you a little background on the farm. Um, I'm the third generation to run this farm. My grandpa started it in 1938. Uh, my dad and uncle ran it after that. They were it's always, we've always had potatoes on the farm. Uh, my dad and uncle were doing potato and malting barley rotation, both monocultures. Um, when I took over, we really started bringing in some plant diversity, really saw a lot of great things there. Um, we actually stopped growing malting barley um, the main reason for us was just lack of water. Uh, we, our water situation is pretty dire here right now. Uh, we pull all of our irrigation from an aquifer. We've combination of overdeveloping the land and overusing a, a resource has gotten us to the point where the economics behind the barley, we just, it's hard for us to justify using that water right now. So what I'm doing right now is we have about 500 acres under irrigation. Half of those acres will be potatoes. In the other half will be a diverse cover crop. Um, cover cropping is where we were introduced to diversity, absolutely fell in love with it. So I immediately tried finding out, try and figure out ways to bring diversity into the potato crop. So currently I plant a five species companion crop mix directly into my potatoes. So I've got fava beans, two species of field peas, chickpeas, chickling vetch, and buckwheat in with my potato crop. Um, there's a lot of uh, fertility benefits that come along with that. But the other thing is feeding beneficial insects is one of the things I really like from it. Um, on the potato side of things, we grow both fresh market and certified seed, all specialty varieties. But we have to manage aphid in our potato crop because they will spread virus. So every other certified seed grower around here is using lots of spending a lot of money on insecticides trying to kill the aphid. My approach is I, I try to bring as much diverse life as possible to the potato fields, try to create a lot of habitat for beneficial insects, and it's been working very well for us in using that to manage the aphid instead. Um, so I've got the companion crops in the potatoes, but also do a lot of flower strips, border buffer strips around the edge and through the middle of the field. So lots of lots of diversity. Uh, potatoes are the main cash crop we're growing, but I've got well over 30 to 40 species of plants on my farm every year just to 
grow the best possible potatoes. Um, the last thing we brought in is we were been doing the cover crops for quite a while and we were missing that livestock component. So we've been working with some local ranchers and for the last oh, four or five years, we've been bringing both cattle and sheep on to graze the cover crops during the summer. And that's just brought in another level of diversity and it's just kind of taken us to the next level and absolutely love what that's doing for us. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. Excellent. Thank you, Brendan. Um, so if, if anybody's out there, this is a networking session. Um, you can ask questions in chat. Uh, feel free to start throwing questions at Brendan or myself. Um, we will do our best to answer them. If we can't, we'll, we'll just admit that we can't. So it's not a big deal. This is basically like we're at a conference at uh, coffee time or at lunchtime. Right. Do you have right now 109 people sitting at your table? Feel free to chat to them privately. If you go into the chat box, you can you know, click on their name and you can give a direct message to one person or you can give a direct message to everyone. Um, so by all, all means, uh, use that chat box. That's what we're uh, the whole concept of this is that chat box. If you feel you have an answer to something, right, somebody had a question or a comment and you want to make a comment, answer it in chat. Right? We don't want everybody just interrupting in the in the 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 voice here. Um, we're going to take questions in order as they come in chat. So if you can, if you want to get your question in, make sure you throw it in early. So um, I'll just add to what Brendan was saying there a little bit. Uh, as as a regenerative grazer, when I look out at uh, regenerative crop farming, um, there's some of the concepts and principles that. Uh, that don't quite match. Um, you know, I, I'm trying to build the water cycle in what I'm doing. And in a lot of the, the, the grain or the crop farming, we're not working with the water cycle very well. And I'm trying to build biology and, and so that I can get free fertility. And it, well, that's not happening in a lot of the crop operations. So um, I'm, I'm not saying it, you know, anything's wrong or I don't want to offend anybody here. If I'm too blunt tonight, I apologize right off the start. But I think the principles are what we have to look at. So if you're you know, coming in here tonight and you're, you know, wondering what's going on and what's this regenerative crop farming. Um, look at it as principles today. Don't look at it as, well, I don't grow potatoes, you know, under irrigation. So that's not going to work for me. I want you to kind of look at concepts and ideas and, and there's principles that apply in regenerative agriculture that because their principles are, or are concepts, you adapt them to your environment, you adapt them to your operation. So what I've always said is you take the idea and make it work for you. So, right. So I've been uh, talking about Brendan Rocky for quite a while now, because I'm, I'm very excited about what he's doing with potatoes. But I also say to people, well, if he can do it with potatoes where he's at, then, you know, the grain farmers up here around us have no excuse. It's like, he's taken a, a very difficult situation and actually growing soil where he's got to do tillage all the time. And that's very hard to, to do And but he's doing it. So if we, uh, you know, up here in our, our area, we're mostly a lot of zero-till farmers. Um, we can, you know, leave that ground covered and still not rip it up. Uh, we have no excuse. He's he's building soil down there under potatoes. So um, I'm really excited about some of the things that the Gateway Research Organization is doing. We've got uh, uh, polycultures that we, we're, we're working with. We've got inner seeding. Um, we've actually got some perennial grains. We're working with a, a trial on Kernza. Um, it's a perennial wheat. So it's actually derived from uh, a wheatgrass and they're actually taking uh, grain from it and they're making beer and flour out of it. So you got uh, just about everything you need there, right? Cows grazing it, beer and, and flour, you're all set. Um, but uh, some really interesting things. And you seed it once, 
and then it's good for 10 years or 15 years or whatever. So we're really excited about this perennial stuff. Now they're coming out with the perennial legumes, uh, perennial oil seeds. Uh, it's kind of funny for years I've said, if they're going to GMO something, why don't they put uh, a wheat head on top of a quackgrass root? Wouldn't that be a great crop? <laughs> or uh, how about a canola panicle on top of a uh, Canada thistle root? Boy, that'd be a fantastic crop, wouldn't it? Um, the reason nobody ever does that is because there's no money in it. Right. Like you sell the seed once to a farmer. When are you going to sell it to him again? He's good for 10 years. So, of course, these big companies are never going to invent that. They're actually going to probably be very much against having these certified and, and allowed to be out there. So um, the Kearns of Wheat is actually developed under the Land Institute in Kansas. And uh, they're a nonprofit organization, like similar to Grow and, and Gray Wooded Forge Association. So um, I'm really excited about those trials. So um how are we doing in the chat there for questions, Clay? Yep, we've got one right here awesome. from Brian English. He's the first one in with a question, and I see his uh, videos on. His microphone is unmuted, so he is ready to go. Yeah. Um, good evening, Brian English from Manitoba. Brendan, I'm interested in your cover crops that you're growing with your potatoes. Do you do you take them to harvest, or are you using them for livestock? Uh, none of the above. So the companion crops that I've got directly planted in the potatoes, it's such a light seeding rate that there's really not much out there. Even if there was a way for me to go out and harvest them, I don't think it would be worth the fuel and time to go gather that crop. Um, I, I'm doing about 15 pounds total of the mixture of all the species in it. And that I feel like that gives me enough of what I need out there to complement the potato crop. Um, one of the things, though, that was nice about having the companion crop out there, since I'm not harvesting that companion crop, is when I do go and harvest the potatoes, a lot of those are have gone to full maturity. So the actual process of harvesting the potatoes plants that seed for me. So after potato harvest, if, if we get some, some moisture during potato harvest, I'll actually get another cover crop after the potatoes. And the thing that's so nice about that is it's an absolutely free cover crop because I didn't spend anything extra on seed. It's already out there. And it's usually at a time where during potato harvest, we don't really have time or much of a growing season left to get out there and plant much of a cover crop. So if on day one of harvest, I'm planting that cover crop, you get some rain out there, boom, I'll get a, a nice flush out there of a free cover crop, get another opportunity for a living root in the soil, some more nitrogen fixation, more positive things going on by having it out there. So I, I really, I'm not growing that crop out there because I'm trying, to, it, it's not to produce another crop. It's because the potatoes, when they are grown with these other plants perform better, it, it, it improves my nutrient cycling, my carbon cycling, and also is beneficial for, for the, the insect populations. So that's the main reasons for having them out there. And are you seeding them in between the rows then, or is it broadcasted? Um, so I've, I put some Gandhi boxes. Let me see. I want to see, I have some other background pictures here. Let me see. I can show you my planter. Okay. Can you guys see that? I'll kind of try to get out of the way here. Oh, I'm disappearing pretty good. So on, on the potato planter, I put some Gandhi boxes on. So when the potatoes are getting planted, 
my companion crop is getting put in 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 the in the hill with the potato so it's getting planted pretty deep and so that's when i was first trying to figure this out you know i had those thoughts do i broadcast do i plant them in the hill in between and so when i manage my weeds i cultivate in between the rows so i didn't really want to broadcast everything because i would take out all of the crop while i was managing my weeds and i think that's one of the biggest challenges whenever you're trying to introduce a companion crop is how do you introduce more species of plants that you want to thrive, but not allow it an opportunity for weeds to come in. So I, I plant them really deep. And a lot of the time, the companion crops will come up almost too fast. And when I make my first pass on tillage, I'll actually take the tops of those plants off. But the species I have selected to be companion crops, if you knock the tip off, they have nodes that are further down. So it starts a whole new shoot that comes up. And so I, by even through my cultivation practices, I'm not taking that companion crop out. So have you been able to also reduce uh, fertilizer use for your potatoes or is that kind of, well, I would just say collectively, everything I'm doing has greatly reduced my fertility use so it's hard for me to pinpoint one component of a complex system and say how much benefit I'm getting from that one thing. Now, let me, let's see. Oh, I didn't put that picture up, but I, I've got, when I dig, go out there and dig up one of these potato hills and I've got one of those legumes growing right next to it. I, I showed, I showed you that one picture. Didn't I see with the the pea, the nodule that was growing on that thing, it was about the size of, it was bigger than a quarter, almost a 50 cent piece. So I've got legumes out there when I would normally not have that nitrogen fixation taking place. And whether or not I'm getting direct benefit during that potato growing season from those legumes, it, it's kind of hard to say. I feel like I'm getting some of that benefit. But even if I'm not benefiting directly right then and there, I'm still have those legumes out there. So I'm still, it's still supporting the nutrient cycle as a whole. So that's why I say it, it for me, I, it, I'd look at it more big picture, more broad spectrum. It's really about improving the health of the soil, my overall fertility. And it's just so hard to quantify some of these practices to the point where I can tell you I'm getting X amount of nitrogen by having these companion crops out there. I don't really know. But overall, the system, I've greatly reduced what my fertility inputs are, for sure. Hey, thank you very much. Yeah, so I, I could add to that a little bit, Brian. I, I think you're, um, I kind of forgot your original question, but I had in my head that um, when it triggered me years ago, we had Dr. Christine Jones come out for a seminar. And she was talking about uh, planting polycultures of multiple species together. And someone said, well, and the, the topic was piola. So peas and canola together. And someone was made the comment about, well, it was, you know, it's, it's awkward or expensive to be able to sort out the peas and canola after. And her comment right off the bat was, well, why would you sort them? I'm like, um, I don't know. But her point was the peas are not there to be harvested. Oh. Right. It's a nitrogen fixer. Leave it, leave it in the ground put it back. And then it, you know, you know, over time, different things came in. And then I, you know, you think about the cow, well, 80% of what the cow eats comes out their back end. Right. So if we can recycle some of that, like that pea was there for another reason, it wasn't necessarily there to be harvested. We, we have this mentality in farming that we have to harvest everything. And, uh, 
That's We've had neighbors do the peas and canola together, and they've just used a rotary screen, and uh, they've taken out the peas and canola. Those two are two of the easier ones to separate, of course. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Very that, interesting. That's just, that's just the example we had. Um, but yeah, I mean, so yeah, yeah. that cover crop that you're putting in there, don't think of it as a crop, but maybe think of it as a soil amendment, right? Yeah, that's what we're yeah. doing. We're just fixing. We have livestock. Well, we, we can use it all. Yeah. Excellent. Hey, thank you very much. You bet. Well, and then right. that's why I really, really try to differentiate, you know, campaigning crop versus a polyculture. You know, there are definitely opportunities out there to grow two different crops at the same time. That's definitely not what I'm trying to do here. And that's what's nice about the companion crops I have. They're just not a problem at all as far as how we harvest the potatoes. So they've already, by the time I'm harvesting that potato, it's done its job and I'm not too concerned. And what's nice too is if I don't get that rain event and then I have that seed out there this coming spring and then I still get another flush of free cover crop out there at some point i'm rotating with a cover crop anyways so i've just got a different mindset when it comes to volunteer plants i, I welcome them later on whenever it may be okay are we on to the next question sure i think so all right i think calvin's up next and i see his screens up and he's ready to unmute his microphone and ask his question uh good evening i was wondering in your cover crop mixtures what Flowering plants, do you include to bring in more beneficial um, bugs to have, and to have something flower all season long? Yeah, so, I mean, diversity is a big part of it. Um, and when we're putting these diverse flowering mixes together, I think a couple of the things you really want to highlight is having stuff that's going to bloom early, bloom somewhere in the middle, and then bloom late too. So you always have some kind of food source out there, but also the architecture of the plants, having diversity within that is so important too, because these beneficial insects like reproducing in such different environments, you wanna create as much diversity out there for them to reproduce. Um, in my flowering mixes, we try to change it around each year just because I, I get bored pretty easy. So I always like something new out there, but there's some, some stuff I really like out there. Um, we put a real small amount of mustard in there, uh, buckwheat, radish, peas, uh, oilseed uh, sunflowers, some oats, uh, hairy pod vetch. Oh, I'm trying to think what all the other ones are. It's usually about 20 species altogether when it's said and done. And uh, one thing that really surprised me too is when we first started with these, I, I planted it real early because I was always told, you know, you need the flowers out there because you need that pollen and the nectar out there to feed the beneficial insects. But this crop was coming up, it was no more than four inches tall and we were already seeing beneficial insects out there. So I wasn't giving the extra floral nectar enough credit because we had sunflowers out there that were a long ways from blooming, but they were already producing those water droplets out there and feeding beneficial insects from a ver very early stage. So I think even we went to the trouble to put all that diversity into this mix and we didn't even give enough value to what all was going to be going on out there. So it actually exceeded our expectations by quite a bit, just having you know, put it out, you have to put it out there to do some good. And it was nice because it always seems to be exceeding our expectations. The Gateway Research Organization a little while ago worked with the, it was through a government program, obviously. Um, it was called the Pollinator 
uh, species trial or something. And I, I remember going out to one of our fields, uh, one of the grain farmers that I work with, they had the strip put into their property. And I remember we had the minister of agriculture come out and do a show on it. So the one concern that they had, of course, in agriculture, because they didn't want to get in trouble, is they were very careful on which species they put in there that wouldn't end up being weeds to the rest of the agriculture community. So if you wanted to get a hold of the Gateway Research Organization, I'm sure they still have records of which those were. Uh, and then, you know, maybe your neighbors aren't going to get upset with you if, you know, something spreads across because uh, <laughs> that is a possibility. Um, you know, the, the species that Brendan plants in his situation are going to be different than ours. Okay, so like I said, take the idea. So how do we get those pollinators? Um, do, you know, do we get different types of, of plants out there? Uh, one of the things that I work on all the time is edges, right? Um, the excitement always happens on the edge, okay? So there's lots of edges that we can create in our fields. Um, if you put a shelter belt down, right? There's an edge between the forest and the open land. There's an edge between the open land and the riparian area. There's an edge between the riparian area and the water. Okay, so how many edges you, uh, can you build on your property? I, I wrote an article a few years ago and I talked about living on the edge and on a quarter section. So that's uh, two miles in perimeter, right? Around the outside of a quarter section is a half mile by a half mile by a half mile by a half mile. Um, when I was said and done, I built the perfect piece of land. In my mind, what I could, if I could build it from scratch, and I ended up having 26 miles of edge on my one quarter section. And I still only had, you know, probably still had 70 to 80% of it arable productive land. Okay, so just by trying to create some edge, um, we can bring in those pollinators. Um, it's not even just pollinators. What about dragonflies? What about bats? What about uh, spiders? Right. All of these things are interacting between these edges. And and yes, we need flowers, but we also need just uh, diversity, uh, different types of plants, different areas, different zones and and create as many edges as we can. So my two cents. Yeah, yeah and I, I think that's a really good point. One thing I didn't really mention about where we are is we are technically desert. So we get less than six inches annual precipitation. So what's nice about an area where you are, you have all these different holes that you can go out there and fill where you're not necessarily producing. Whereas I'm really confined to being underneath the, our irrigation if I'm going to put something out there. So that is, is a big limitation. But even within that, there's always opportunities. There's always these blank spots here or there. We're always trying to find these little holes that we can fill up with just something. And all these little things. And if... And here I am with, we've got our 500 acres. I'm doing as much as I can for this diversity, but really been trying to get all the neighbors on board with these concepts too. Because I think if this entire growing area was bought into this and we all had these little sections throughout the whole valley, then I, I don't think we would ever have to worry about managing NAFED again. But I am truly kind of isolated and on an island in, in the middle of all this. So I'm going to be somewhat limited by all the monocultures that still surround me. If you want to see Brendan's farm, um, I obviously go to his website, but I also shared it on my Facebook page. I got a picture of his farm and you can see the difference between the land where his farm yard starts and where the irrigation pivot ends. It's quite dr drastic change. So, yeah, very good. Uh, I think we're ready to move on to David. He's got a question ready to go for us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, so. I was just, uh, my name is David and I'm coming from, uh, speaking from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan here tonight, but um, 
I consider myself from Lacombe uh, in Alberta, but I have a question that kind of goes on to a bit of the mechanical side of this. This is just interesting growing up in an area where they do grow conventional seed potatoes. Um, how does it work in harvesting the potatoes? Is Are the <coughs> companion crops still green around it? And so does that out allow you to, is there some complications that come up there when you're mechanically harvesting that, uh, you know, green vegetation gets caught and things and stuff like that? Uh, that's a great question. So one of my concerns when I first did the companion crop and why we didn't do the entire farm the first year, I was worried about, am I going to create some kind of problem at harvest time? And I have had never had a single problem whatsoever by having these companion crops out there. Um, when we first started with the companion crops, we were using sulfuric acid as a vine desiccant. And that stuff is very non-selective. It kills everything. So by the time we get out there to, to harvest the potatoes, all the companion crops that we had out there were very dry and brittle and fell apart very easily, no trouble whatsoever. Um, we no longer have that available to us, so we've switched to Reglone for a vine desiccant. And it's a little more selective. It does a really good job desiccating um, the field peas and the potatoes, but the faba beans um, and chickpeas actually stay green a little bit, but I'm also not irrigating anymore. And so they dry out quite a bit, but even when they are green, like the fava bean, it's just a nice tall stalk, goes right over the diviner chain out the back, no problem at all. Um, the chickling vetch, it's a little green at harvest time. Once in a while, you'll wrap around a PTO shaft a little bit, but it, it's never been to the point where I've had to stop or, or been problematic. So that's not bad. And I actually really like now having that green having some of that companion crop stay green even after vine desiccation because before with growing potatoes when you're just a monoculture I felt like that was always a time when we were very vulnerable to disease because you're killing the living plant it changes all the dynamics in the soil all the living component but by living leaving some of that stuff that's green out there I actually feel like it keeps some of the biology going and it's reduced some of our other problems that we might see and what I mean by that is it, if we desiccate our vines and then the moisture the weather stays very dry for two weeks after that our quality is really beautiful if we get a real heavy rain too soon before the skins have set that's when we might see some rise octonia or something coming on the potatoes but by having that green plant out there if we get some moisture i feel like it helps kind of regulate that a little bit and we don't get overly saturated and create that environment for a lot of those diseases to come in so i like having that green plant still out there even after the potatoes have been killed. Awesome, thanks. And just to kind of build on Steve's comment of edges, another good thing is like uh, with shelter belts and stuff, with having that overwintering habit is kind of an, or habitat is another good thing that that uh, provides for all like beetles and things like that. They're not quite as sexy as pollinators, but still good things as far as beneficial insects. So anyways, great conversation. Thank you very much. Yeah. Come on, David, there's nothing sexier than a good dung beetle. <laughs> All right. Next, next up is uh, Larry Holcomb. He's got a question for us. If you're ready to unmute and fire away. Yeah, well, you answered about the beneficial insects already. I appreciate that. But one question was, uh, are you beginning to see improvements with the livestock and, uh, that you're incorporating? And the hairy vetch, I love it from the pastures and it reseeds, but is that a problem with it reseeding for you? Okay, so the question, you, you're asking if, if we saw have seen an improvement improvement in the livestock health? Yes. No, in the livestock 
in, in your hip and your uh, soul. Yeah, right. Have we seen an improvement in the soil by having the livestock yes. out there? Okay. Um, I would say so, but I think it's been pretty minimal because we've already, we up before we incorporated the livestock, we already had so much going on as far as plant diversity, good soil structure, good carbon cycling that I didn't see a huge jump by having the livestock out there, but I definitely think it's been beneficial. Um, but when we go back and when we first introduced just the diverse cover crops by themselves, that I feel like that's the biggest leap forward we ever took in one year. You know, you see this great dramatic change, then the farmer wants to see that improvement every single year. And you kind of plateau out a little bit. So it gets harder as you improve your soil, it gets harder and harder to see those big leaps anymore. So I'm very pleased. I, I've definitely not seen any negatives that have come from the livestock. And when a lot of people first heard what we were doing, they were really concerned about having that livestock component out there the year before the potatoes, they kept telling me it was going to create some problems. But I think a big part of that is adding livestock doesn't automatically improve your soil. Properly managing that livestock is how you're going to improve the soil. So I think you could come in with livestock and manage them poorly and do a lot of damage to your soil. Uh, I would hope so. It would have to biology the soil. But the, the, you have a problem with high vegetable receding just for the potatoes? Um, so I don't, I don't put hairy vetch in with the potatoes, with the companion crop. Um, okay. the only hairy vetch we have is, 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 is in my flowering strips and sets around a buffer around the edge. And we didn't, we don't haven't had any trouble with that really volunteering. Um, we keep an eye on that stuff. As soon as I do desiccator vines, we go through and, and mow those flowering strips, which I know it's kind of a double-edged sword. You want to leave some of that out there for the beneficials but at the same time i'm worried about it going to seed and so i have to kind of figure out you know what do i want to help right now and what problems what do i want to avoid next year so we do we do mow and we do manage those strips as needed to kind of keep a lot of that stuff from going to seed excessively thank you my addition to that larry would be yeah definitely the biology that the the livestock would add Right. You can do all sorts of things with equipment that add physical stimulation to the soil and physical stimulation and breakdown, but there's a big component to that that we need the biological impact as well. Right? There's biology in the manure and the urine, there's biology in the snot and the saliva and off the hair coats, and um, I think that's a big addition to it. Now, that polyculture of plants is a, a huge step forward, like Brendan said, um, but integrating that livestock too and, and recycling 80% of that is a, is a, another, I would, I would think that would be a huge step. So, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think it would be a, a noticeable difference where you could see that big jump, but I think at it using chemicals, which you have to do, I understand, but you're killing the biology. So I think the animals would put some of that back in there, which would be beneficial. Yeah. Am I convinced that having the livestock out there is beneficial? Absolutely. Yeah. Have I been able to see something that I can quantify on paper yeah. to show the difference it's made? No, I, I can't quantify it like that. But am I convinced? Absolutely. And I'm not going to stop doing it. I, I absolutely love having them out there. It is a positive a component of our system now. Well, I, I don't have sheep. If I bring sheep in, are you seeing another realm that you might that might help even more? Uh, just more diversity, right? A cow's going to okay. do one thing for you and the sheep's going to do something similar, but a little different. And a lot of it was just what we had available to us with the rancher we were working with. He had so many head of cattle and so many head of sheep and we tried to rotate them around. Um, the sheep are actually a lot easier to manage. 
because mm. with the cattle we have to put for our area we have to put uh, we put a double strand hot wire around the field and then just trying to manage that with the center pivot and you know trying to you got wires coming here and there and you got to keep running them dropping them and going around and getting across the wires and all that whereas with the sheep they just come out with a sheep herder and they pin them at night and they can just do what they need to do and uh, a good example of that is where we have one of our circles and it's split in half. We have cover crop on one half and potatoes on the other half. And if you had cattle on that half, then you've got the, the wire in your way. It gets in the way of the harvester. You're trying to manage that on one half and harvest potatoes on the other half. And this year we had the sheep out on the other half. And they, you know, if we have the harvester in one section, they're over there and they, they're out of our way. We harvest that section. They come over and then they actually came over and were, uh, they uh, grazed the potatoes too. And kind of clean yes, that yeah. up for us. So just, yes, yeah. yeah, so I just really it. liked just the ease of it having the sheep out there. You just need a cow herder. Yeah, instead of, yeah. Instead of a sheep herder, you need a cow herder. Yeah, that that would be one solution for well, it. For sure. in the, in hopefully in the future, which maybe on my time, they'll have the new collars where you can just set the range and they can go so far. That would be awesome in that circumstance to eliminate the wires. Thank you. All right. Very good. Up next, uh, we've got a question from TK Ranch. He's having trouble with his microphone and his in his uh, camera. So I'm going to ask, is it worth adding bee boxes for pollinators? I can start with that one if you want this time, Brendan. Go for it. Um, I, again, I'm not the crop farmer, but definitely on my uh, my ranch, I think we've got a lot of benefit. I work with one of the local uh, bee honey producers, and I think I've got seven sets of hives on my land. And uh, I think it's beneficial. I know the honey guy sure loves it when I've got this thick, you know, patch of clover out there. And and with our rotation, right, we've always got some clover within reach of that those beehives. So he's really happy about it. And and I I can't see there being any harm in that. So I, I'm I'm really happy working with him. Yeah, uh, we, we've definitely noticed the difference. As I keep switching my picture for you, got the bees out there. Um, so we have a, a local beekeeper. He was real excited about what we were doing, and it, it was some. It was actually a pretty funny conversation because he saw what we were doing, putting the flower strips out in the potato field. And he said, "Oh, that's great that you're putting these pollinator strips out there." I said, "Well, I don't really consider it a pollinator strip because in order to grow potatoes, that's completely vegetative. We don't." we don't rely on pollination whatsoever. If those potatoes never produce the flower, we would grow a potato crop just the same. So in his eyes, we had pollinator strips, but for me, I was just trying to feed the predatory insects that manage the aphid. But it, anyways, it didn't really matter what you called it. We were improving the populations of, of beneficial insects out there in general. So he did want to come out and bring, he brought some bees out. He wanted to kind of see how they would do out there with all that diversity. Um, we saw some really fascinating things. He he collected some pollen samples all off of these bees as they were going into their hives. And just the diversity in the color of the pollen was absolutely amazing. Made some really good honey. Um, the cells in the hives had different colors in there. So a real educational uh, moment for me. Um, the tr Where we ran into trouble is he tested his honey when he was done and he was looking for uh, insecticides in his honey and the levels were very high. So the trouble is our fields, they're about a half mile wide each, each way and we are surrounded by canola production. So we were actually too close to canola production for him. So even though what we were doing, and it kind of goes back to what I was talking to earlier, 
even though what we were doing was very beneficial and healthy on our fields, we were surrounded by these monoculture canola fields that were loaded with neonics. And it was just too close to those canola fields. So he only did it the one year and didn't come back. So regardless, I mean, we still have so many different species of bees out in those strips um, to the point where you go out there at the right time of day. and You just you can hear the cover crops. Don't even have to look around the noises out there. Um, a lot of different species out there, a lot of solitary bees and just really cool stuff going on. So I like having them out there. They don't cause any harm at all. But as far as honey production, I, I don't see that as being a reality currently on our farm. My, my honey producer, he talked about maybe going organic to produce some organic honey. And I guess the re- regulations, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm thinking he said you have to be five miles away from any grain fields that spray. So that's a long ways for a bee to fly to go get some contaminated pollen, right? So, um, yeah, to be organic, you got to be that far away. Uh, the other thing I was going to add, um, Brendan talked about, well, it's not just pollinators. And I so agree. We took over a piece of grain land a couple of years ago and uh, it was in grain country and we were right in the middle of all that. And uh, the the first two years, uh, the mosquitoes were so bad, right? We'd go, my wife wouldn't even go down there and get out of the vehicle. They were so bad. I got a video on my Facebook page. If anybody wants to look for it, the, the mosquitoes are everywhere. They're just thick. Like it was you couldn't put on enough bug spray. I don't usually wear bug spray, but boy, you couldn't put enough on down there. Um, and what I tried to do was develop the riparian area. Okay. So we created more edge. We backed, we, you know, obviously we backed the grain farm farming away from the, the riparian area, protected it. And we allowed a, my goal was to allow for the um, dragonfly population to come in. Dragonflies are really important for me for, for uh, predator control. They're very agile. They're very fast. They got great eyesight and they can pick, insects out of the air, no problem. Uh, the problem with a dragonfly is that it takes uh, two to four years of an aquatic nymph stage, so their teenager stage, where they live in the water, uh, to produce a two-week-long adult lifestyle or lifespan. Right? They only live for two weeks as an adult. So I need lots of generations of them throughout the summer, but it takes so long of good riparian area management to get that. So for two years or one and a half years, we had terrible mosquitoes down there. And then all of a sudden, you know, partway through that second year, the dragonflies hatched and you could just hundreds of dragonflies wrote and we didn't need any more bug spray. Like it just turned around like that. And all it was, was a little bit of riparian area management to do that. So creating more edge, creating more environment for breeding grounds. Um, that is like amazing to me. Very good. Well, I think we're on to Daniel's question now. Daniel's got his screen up and, and his mic unmuted. He's ready to ask his question. Yeah, um, we are uh, southern Manitoba here. We're a little farm uh, surrounded by cash crop land. We're trying to work with some neighbors on getting our cattle into their land. Um, same as what you guys are doing with uh, cover crops. Just wondering what what's kind of your arrangement with uh, is there money exchange? Is there labor exchange or, you know, what, what's uh, we need kind of some ideas on how, what you guys are doing. Well, I'll, I'll go into it real quick. I know Steve will have a lot more input on this one. Um, we just, we, our relationship with the rancher is kind of my goal going in is I wanted to charge enough that we were incentivized, but I can't charge too much to where he's not going to want to come back. And so I kind of had a number in my head and then I just kind of let him decide what 
he was able to pay. And at the end of it, it came out really close. And so what he's paying us, he, he brings out cow cap pairs and it's 25 cents per head per day. And he keeps track. He knows how many head are out there. He keeps track of the days. Then usually before we start grazing the next season, he shows up with a check and we, we square up. So it, it, it's been working really well for us. Um, it, it's, it's not, it's not enough from the farmer's perspective. I don't really see it as a revenue source for sure, but my goal with this was I'm going to grow that cover crop anyways in my rotation. So if I can make enough off of that to offset my expenses of growing that cover crop, that's kind of what I was going for. And usually he pays me enough for pasture rent that it usually covers about three fourths of my seed expense to grow that cover crop. So for me, I'm content with that. Okay, so are you? Is he's? I guess he's taking care of the fencing. Um, what about water? Is he? Is that his responsibility too? Uh, kind of both. So we we use the center pivot for the water source. So he sets up the tanks at the pivot. So we have to work together there a little bit. Usually we can go every other day filling it up, and then when it's got the cover crop out there, we just run the sprinkler real fast, and it it's a two inch hose out there. It doesn't take long at all to fill it up. So. We've got a good relationship. If he knows he won't be out there for a day or two, he'll give me a call and ask me to fill up the water. And but I, he's he's real reliable, and I the cattle never become my problem. You know that's his responsibility. If I need to do something, it's because we communicated, and he's asked me once in a while. You know, you might get some guys sneaking out. You know, and we just we just have real good communication. He's about twenty miles away, so it's not a real far distance for him to run over if we have to go take care of a small problem, but it's been working out really well for us. And then with the sheep, we've got a sheep herder. He lives out there with the sheep. He's out there 24 hours a day. The sheep have been no trouble whatsoever for us. Perfect. Good. Yeah. Thanks. There we go. We need to have more sheep herders. That's what we need here. Um, yeah, Daniel, I've worked with some grain farmers in the past too. And, and, and it depends on your environment. It depends on the situation. So our prices change depending on the situation a little bit. If we're doing a winter crop, like swath grazing in the winter is a little different. Um, are we just doing residues or is it a full crop? Um, it's gotta be a win-win, right? If, if one guy wins and the other one loses, then it's, it's not going to happen. So the, the one fella that I work with, um, uh, local here. I've been working with him since 2002, right? It doesn't always work, right? Some years it works out better for him. Some years it works out better for me. Um, you know, there's the odd year where it doesn't work out for anybody, right? We, we all have those years, but um, it's got to be a win-win and you, you want to keep the relationship going. So you got to be flexible. Um, again, like Brandon said, the crop farmer, he can't expect, you know, full revenue out of that crop because they got to go into it thinking that there's the benefit to the soil um you know cover your costs and maybe make a little bit um um, my my one grain farmer one year said that he made more money on his uh on the swath grazing that we did so grazing in the winter than he would have if he would have combined the crop right so some years it works out very well for them um other years well if they're breaking even then they're they're quite content with it because they're you know they're all that nutrients is going back into the land um so you've got to work out the deal now the one thing that i did uh negotiate from from one year's experience um uh, this was a few years ago but we were saying 75 cents per head per day um on the first year and then we ended up having a very low quality crop uh, we had to supplement and in my situation it's got to be a win-win-win because i don't own the cattle okay mm-hmm. so there's a cattle owner in this there's the custom grazer which is me and then there's the grain guy right so there's th- three people that have to stay happy in that so when the the crop was a poor quality and we said 75 cents per head per day, 
then all of a sudden the cow guy had to supplement a whole bunch more, right? And then all of a sudden it wasn't a win for him. So we negotiated that out a little bit. I said, okay, let's do 75 cents per head per day minus any supplement cost. Okay, so if we had a, a high quality, you know, a couple of years ago, we had oats and peas and volunteer canola that came up. That was our swath grazing. It was great, fantastic feed, right? We didn't have to add a, a thing. Um, whereas another year we had uh, uh, pea straw residue. Okay, well, pea straw residue is very minimal. When it gets cold, we got to add some energy to it. So, so when we did that, plus any supplement well then if i you know if i had to take three or four bales out that week well off of you know i added up the number of bales in the month the end of the month we worked it out so instead of i'm just going to guess here instead of 75 cents per head per day for the month he would have got you know 55 cents per head per day for the month because we subtracted off the the price of that hay and that supplement now the it's an easy negotiation with the grain farmer because i can just tell him well one we're bringing in extra nutrients right? Which is going to recycle through the cow and be fertilizer for your land. Um, two, if I'm bringing in extra feed and we're on a per head per day basis, well, we're going to get more days out of it, right? So instead of going for, you know, 130 days, we're going to get 145 days out of it. So we're still selling the same amount of crop form. So I never had, I don't have any trouble explaining that to the grain farmer. And they're like, oh, okay, that sounds good. Right. And then the, the, the guy who owns the cows, which might be you in this case, right? Then you're not going to be out what you planned in the beginning, right? Now, the one thing I do have to warn you is make sure everybody's quite aware. If there's a wreck, what happens, (laughs) right? Like if all of a sudden we get four feet of snow and we can't get through the swaths anymore, okay, what happens? We got to have a backup plan. Talk about that in advance so we know, right? Like don't wait until it happens. Um, Just make sure everything's clear. Then there's no you know, arguments down the road is, you know, think about, <laughs> go in there and brainstorm what could possibly go wrong and uh, just talk about it. Then it's done. So that would be my advice. Perfect. Right on. Thanks guys. Bet. All right. Very good. Up next is Joshua. Yeah. Hey there. It's Josh here from, uh, well, I'm near Busby, Alberta, but right now I'm coming from Calgary. And uh, I was just a little curious as to uh, what what specific potatoes do you have, Brendan? Um, what do you find are the best genetics? And do you have any heirloom potatoes? Uh, kind of keeping those uh, older varieties around that uh, might die out if we didn't keep them, you know, and use them. Um, also, I was given actually a, a bag full of about 10 different varieties from this old lady who's been keeping them for... Um, I don't know, 60 years or so. And she sort of crossbred a few kinds. And she gave me, she told me that potatoes can be determinate and indeterminate, same as a a tomato. And she's talking about growing them in a tower and you can just produce like pounds and pounds of potatoes from one plant and you just keep adding soil and and building it up or something like that. So I thought that was pretty cool. And it's, uh, it's a way for maybe folks in the city on an apartment balcony or whatever to, uh, to be able to grow and, and create some green space there in the, in the uh, concrete jungle. So I don't know what thoughts you have on that. Okay. That was a lot of questions. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to forget some of those. We'll go back um, over in the chat. I just put a link. This is a website where we sell our seed. That is the easiest way to see all the varieties we grow. Um, we, we usually do about 25 varieties a year. Um, we do some heirloom varieties, but some newer ones too. Uh, we've got a breeding program here 
at the Colorado State University, and we grow several of their varieties. Um, we are in a trans transition right now as far as what varieties we are growing. Um, I, I mentioned virus earlier on. That's the number one disease we deal with as far as maintaining certified seed. Um, when I grow certified seed, that does not mean my crop is virus free. What it means is I, I, I have met certain tolerances. So I have to be below one and a half percent. I'm allowed one and a half percent of my plants to have this virus during the growing season. And so what has happened in, in probably about, I'd say about eight years ago, these viruses started to mutate. And we had a lot of varieties that we never had to worry about with this virus. Now with these new strains coming in, a lot of these varieties that we've grown for 30 years are no longer going to be manageable as far as us maintaining them as certified seed. So we are transitioning a lot of varieties right now, um, having to get rid of some of those old heirlooms, but at the same time, some of those heirlooms do really well. So it's really on an individual basis as far as which ones we're gonna be able to keep as far as managing the virus. Um, determinate and indeterminate, absolutely. Um, the, a lot, some of the potatoes, they like to put out one set early on, boom, they're all made. Other ones you could go in, if you could go in and go under the hill and pick the potatoes off, they'll continue to make more and more potatoes. Growing them, you're talking about in the towers. I, I've definitely seen that. So one, one method that's real common, we, we sell a lot of garden seeds. So we deal with a lot of people doing the patio garden, like you were talking about, but you start off with the potato and put it in a tire. As that plant comes up, you put the tire, another tire and keep burying that plant. And the reason this works is because all a potato is, is an underground stem. So if, when you get a node, if that node is exposed to sunlight, it's going to develop a leaf. If you keep that node dark, it's going to send out a stolen and produce a tuber. So if you keep burying that plant, you're going to have more opportunities for that plant to make nodes. But you have some trade-off there too, because you still need some leaves to capture sunlight and photosynthesize. So you kind of have to find that happy balance there. Um, part of growing certified seed, we start everything from tissue culture, and then we grow these plantlets in the greenhouse to grow mini tubers. So the tissue comes from disease-free plantlets, to, so we grow disease-free mini tubers. When I take that tissue culture and introduce it into the greenhouse, I kind of go through a similar process. I start off with this little stem and it's got one leaf on it and some roots started. I'll start them off in some flats, let them grow for a couple of weeks until I have several nodes on there. And then I transplant them into the pots so I can bury those nodes. Because if I just take that stem and that all, if the only nodes are above ground, I'll end up with a lot of plant but no potato production. So it's a real similar concept to what you were just talking about. Um, did I answer all your questions? I think, I I think you got most of them there. You get a good, good memory there, Brendan. <laughs> so Josh, I gotta, I'm gonna throw a question back at you. So uh, Brendan grows all the real potatoes at his farm. Do you know what you call a potato that's not growing at Rocky Farms? Couldn't tell you. It's an imitator. <laughs> Come on, we got a little combo. <laughs> okay, we'll go to another question on that one, Clay. All right, sounds good. Uh, up next is Charlene. Uh, are you ready to go, Charlene? Yeah, hi, I'm Charlene, and I'm from Southwest Manitoba, and we farm. I was just wondering if you use any biological products in your system at all, or if you have. Yes, absolutely. Um, so the way we're set up right now is on our 
on the cover crops after they've been grazed is when we come in with the foundation of our fertility for the next year's potato crop. So I will spread compost at this time and I put a, a ton and a half of compost on. And in the compost, I mix in a fish product. It's made by AgroThrive. Um, it's a biologically digested uh, fish. Um, they centrifuge it and they both have a, both a liquid and a, a dry product. I mix that dry product in with the compost. And then I also take soybean meal and add it into the compost as well. So that's really the foundation. So when I plant potatoes this spring, it's going out into this ground where I've already got this, this fertility established. And then with center pivot irrigation, we have really good opportunities because we can put other stuff out there throughout the growing season. So I do use some liquid products on there. Um, I will use the liquid form of the agro thrive throughout the growing season. I'll put on three applications. I will have a, with that, I will have the soybean meal mixed in. And then I've got another biological product that I, I, I use. It's got over 200 species of known uh, beneficial bacteria and fungi. And I've been really pleased with that. And I use all those products in my greenhouse as well. So I am, I, I do, I do like having those biological products that I can put out there. Um, whenever I do put a biological out there, I like to have a diverse food source to go along with it. Um, but as we've moved forward and as, as, as your soil improves, I feel like there's, you get less benefit from those biologicals because hopefully you have a lot of those populations already out there, I think, but the food sources are still really valuable, but these biologicals are so inexpensive that it's a really cheap insurance policy. Why not continue to put it out there? Because I've seen firsthand, especially in the greenhouse, what these biologicals do directly on these crops. So I, I feel very confident putting them out there. Great, thank you. I'm gonna I'm gonna add to that a little bit, Brendan, but I'm gonna sure. add to it as a question. Okay, you okay. I know you have grown other crops as well. Okay, so, and, and I'd like to keep everybody's mind open here that we're not just talking about potatoes tonight. We're we're talking about just the management of the soil and, and how we can do that with a cropping situation. So you you've had some specialty crops, some other crops that you've grown. Um, do you do similar management with that? Are you putting in uh, ex extra additives or how, how is that working? Yeah. So, uh, we, we've been growing some quinoa as well, and I don't, I don't throw a whole lot of extra money at these other crops. For, for me, the potatoes have such an economic incentive that it's easier to spend more money on growing those crops. Whereas the quinoa is so much more of a commodity crop now that your margins so much finer that I don't, have a whole lot of room to play with there as far as putting the biologicals out there. So I really, whenever I, I make that investment in the soil, I really try to put it out there when I have my highest value crop growing, because that's where I've got the greatest potential for return, especially on potatoes, because quality is so important. And so really taking care of that and the quality of the potato coming back out of the field pays off as, as well. And that it factors into the, the economics. Whereas with, with like a grain crop out there, I think it's really hard to justify throwing too much money out there in the form of these biologicals. I would put more of the emphasis on, on the food sources, you know, the soybean, the fish out there, because that's going to benefit all crops and it's going to just help overall what's going on out there. Okay. So if someone was here putting in wheat or peas or barley or something like that, um, you wouldn't go quite so excessive? You would... <laughs> Maybe just real early on, I think some of those biologicals have a definite fit on some grains, but as far as continuing to put it on throughout the growing season, I just don't know if you would really get a very good return on that. 
Okay, so your cover crop, your grazing animals out there would probably give a good kickstart to the the cereals and things like that. Yeah, yeah, okay. that's more of the mindset for sure. Excellent. All right, up next is uh, I think we've got Kelly Dearborn here ready to ask a question. So go ahead when you're ready. You had mentioned you get twenty five uh, cents per head per day. I'm just wondering what the kind of the going rate is in your in your neighborhood down down south there. Is that kind of the the average, I know, Steve, you're talking 75 cents a day. Even that, I don't know, both those numbers seem fairly low. Is that normal or is that kind of an average average price generally? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's pretty much in line. In for our area, we don't have a whole lot of livestock available to graze, so we can't be real picky with that. It's not real competitive. Um, most of the cattle in our area actually have contracts with the BLM in the mountains. So most of the livestock go up to the mountains when I have my cover crop growing. And so the guys I'm working with are one of the few that have don't have those contracts. So it's pretty slim pickings as far as who we have available to work with. So I don't have much uh, negotiating power when, when it comes to that price. So I, I'm very pleased with that price. It, it's working for me and I, I'm not gonna, if I asked them to pay more, I think they would go find somebody else because they have more farmers with cover crops available to them to choose from than I do have livestock growers to choose from. So I have to be somewhat careful. And Kelly, from my point, go ahead, Kelly. I'm sorry. Just just wondering with the cover crop there, um, your cattle guys, do they, you feel that they they're happy with the the quality of the cover crop coming off? Do they get packed full of nutrients or, like Steve, you were mentioning having to add supplements. Like I would imagine with the cover crops you're doing there, uh, Brendan, you probably don't have to do a bunch of supplements. I mean, they they throw some blocks out there just in case the cattle need it, but they really don't show much attention to it. So, I mean, it's just, like I said, a little cheap, little insurance policy. They don't want to create deficit out there, but no, they are extremely happy with the, the quality of feed that those cattle are getting. Okay. And Kelly, I actually haven't done a lot of cover crop grazing. Um, we were going to do one this year, but with the price of canola going up, that kind of got canceled. So, um, most of mine has been residues or, uh, winter feeding like swath grazing. So that's why the price difference comes in as a cover crop during the summer. Yeah, it would probably be higher than that. I think the last one we actually did. And like I said, it changes on year to year, right? How far away is it? Um, is there a water system there? Is there already a perimeter fence, right? All those things make a difference in how much I can afford to, you know, put into this versus what they're going to get out of it. So I think the last year we did a, um, a swath grazing, a full, full crop. We did a dollar 10, uh, per head per day minus any supplement. Um, but the way that worked out, actually, he had the supplement. He had a bunch of bales that he had made up that we, you know, we, he hauled over there and plunked them beside the field. So I got to use his bales as supplements. So then we subtracted the supplement because they, he would just get more per head per day. So every year's different and you've got to work it with that farmer. And, and we're pretty good. We've worked together for many, many years. And, and, you know, I've told him, you know what, if it's not working, let me know and we'll adjust. Right. Like I've been working with them since 202. Right. This is not a relationship that I want to go sideways because one year, you know, he lost money on it. Um, you know what, we got to, on that year where we're losing money, we both need to lose money, right? <laughs> and on the good years, we both need to make some money. So I think we got to maintain that win-win and adjust it uh, to make sure everybody's happy at the end, right? Yeah, and, and when I look at what my alternative is to having that cattle out there, 
if I didn't have the cattle out there, I'm going to go out there and chop that cover crop, incorporate it back in the soil. I'm not going to hay any of it off because I, I don't want to export that nutrient from the field because I'm going to have to replace it with something else. So it, it's a really good alternative for me. So I, like I said, I, I didn't go into it with the intentions of getting rich off of the cattle grazing. It was really just to offset my expenses until we can get back to that high value potato crop. Sounds good. I've been trying to keep my my nose above water here tonight as far as keeping up with all the uh, host responsibilities. So I might have missed this. Um, so along those lines, if I have missed a question from you and somebody else that asked a question after you has already asked their question, go ahead and shoot it to me as a as a direct message. Uh, but I was wondering, are you are they are the people bringing the cattle to you, Brendan, providing all the labor as far as uh, regular moves and and all those things, or are you doing that labor for them for that twenty five cents per head per day? It, it's a hundred percent their labor. Like I said we'll help them if the cattle happen to get out of the perimeter, but it's all them. They come out every two or three days and move the paddock, and they have their pie pieces set up, and we rotate around that field. But no, it, it's it's still their livestock. We don't exchange responsibilities there. It, it's their herd the entire time. Okay. Uh, next up is Blue Set. Campbell, if you're ready to go, we can fire away with your question. Sure. Um, I just, I have a little comment about uh, Steve shouldn't quit his day job. His imitator joke was, oh, um, we'll just move on from that. Um, so my first, my first question, and uh, if I could ask a follow or a, a second question, I'd appreciate that. So you just let me know, Clay. My first question is more of a gardener question um, related to the potato plant specifically. Um, when everyone talks about potato seed, we're actually talking about the fruit itself, right? We're, we're planting the potato seed in the ground, which is actually just uh, a copycat of its parent. And so I'm wondering if you have any, any experience with actually saving the seed head of the nightshade plant that looks very much like a tomato and um, growing any of your own varieties or are particularly to variety health with um, keeping those seed heads and planting those. Hey, you bring up an excellent point. There is a huge difference between a seed potato and a potato seed. So when a, a potato flower blooms and gets pollinated, it will produce what you said. It looks like a little green cherry tomato. And in there are what we call true seed. Now, the reason we don't plant potato crops from the true seed is each of those seed are genetically different. So if we were to plant an entire potato crop from only true seed, there may not be two potatoes in the entire crop that look similar. And that's not appealing to the consumer. When you go to the store, you want a specific variety. You want them all to be consistent size, similar cooking characteristics that you want that consistency. So when we plant this, the seed potato, we are planting the tuber itself. We're, we're taking the potato, cutting it up, putting that in the ground. And that's, what's producing the crop that we're after because the appeal of that is it's, it's all vegetative at that point. So, when a new variety is developed, every single potato from that point on is genetically identical to that very first potato. Now, the trouble with that is we maintain the genetics of it, but if a disease gets introduced to that potato, when we plant it back, that disease is also still there. So if I have a potato plant that gets a virus introduced to it, that virus goes to all the potatoes, we replant the potatoes. Now that virus is in all of those extra plants and it can spread from there. Uh, bacterial, fungal diseases, um, 
or similar problems. So that's why we have certified seed. We're constantly starting fresh stock from tissue culture that we know is disease free. So I've got several different generations of potatoes on my farm all the time. So for an example, uh, take like Yukon Gold, that's a real popular one. I'm, I'm gonna grow it in my tissue culture lab. From there, we're gonna produce tubers in the greenhouse. And the entire time we have certifications coming out, constantly picking leaves, testing the leaves, testing the tubers, checking for disease. I grow those mini tubers, I save those for the next year and they get planted in the field. At this point, they become generation one seed. So the volume at that point is still very low, but it's very clean crop. So I save all of those potatoes, plant it back the next year, we get G2 seed. Save it again, we get to G3. Once we get to G3 is when we start selling it to other people. And so we have to do several years of growing it out just because of the economics behind it in order to get enough volume of that, that crop in order to have enough to be able to sell. Now, the advantage to having the true seed that are all genetically different, that's how we develop new potato varieties. You can take a potato flower. And let's see, I got a picture here. Let me throw one up of the potato flower. And so you can see you've got the, the pistol there and the anthers there. If you were to take this variety, you could take one variety and go take all the yellow parts off and save all the pollen off of that. Then you can go over to another variety, knock all of those off and introduce that pollen onto that pistol and you crossbreed those two potatoes. So you'll let them develop those little seed pods. You'll take all those true seed, grow them out. They'll produce potatoes because each of those true seed was genetically different. And then you just start this selection process. You find a potato you like. From that point forward, everything is vegetative. You're maintaining the genetics of that one potato from that point forward. So uh, the breeding program here, uh, CSU, they, they're about five miles from us. Every summer, they have about 85,000 new potato varieties in their field. It, that first year, when you go through and make your selections, it's, it's a massive culling. 99% of these varieties are absolute crap. They are misshapen, weird colors, lot no yield. Sometimes they don't even hardly produce a potato. A lot of times later on, they end up tasting really bad. So there's a lot of characteristics that are more characteristics that are undesirable than that are desirable. So when you start off with that 85,000 varieties, you, you start culling them off immediately. And after about a 10 year process is how long it takes to develop a new variety. Out of that 85,000, if they get two or three that survived that entire process, they felt that it was successful. So developing new varieties is very challenging. We have done a little bit of crossbreeding ourselves. We've developed a couple of fingerling varieties that we grew for a little while, but it's a very tough game trying to develop brand new potato varieties. So did that clear everything up? Do you have any more questions on that? Yeah, no, I mean, I, fi I find that kind of stuff fascinating. And I, I realize I kind of diverted. I'll just get to my second question because it, it relates more to um, your particular situation with the companion cropping and your neighbors. Um, you were mentioning that you're trying to get sort of everyone on board with what you're doing and maybe have better control of aphids. But the relationship between you and your neighbors might get a little complicated um how are you finding that do they uh, are they worried about your your polyculture there crossing over into their fields are they um are they resistant because of that reason 
or how would um, you describe that relationship with them? I've never had anybody really worried about anything on my farm escaping and get into the neighbor's field. That's not really a concern. The species I'm going, I mean, stuff's not spreading by wind. I've never had that issue. Um, the biggest problem why more guys haven't adopted these practices, that, that's a loaded question in it, Steve. Um, I think it, it varies a lot, but a lot of people really don't understand why I do what I do. Um, there is a group of potato growers here in the valley that are doing the flowering strips. They really like that concept. A few guys have played around with the companion crops. I only know one guy that's really doing it successful. A lot of them have really been challenged with it because they can't figure out how to do it with their herbicide program. So I'm trying to convince them, do you need to get away from the herbicide program to make it work? Um, and it's usually the guys that are more interested in doing the flower strips kind of go in that direction, or it's kind of this younger generation coming up, which is really nice. Um, getting Convincing somebody that's of an older generation than me is very difficult. They don't, they don't like uh, somebody younger than them coming in and telling that, them that what they're doing is wrong. So it, it, it's more it's the social part of it. it is a bigger challenge than anything else. Just, I mean, most people really don't, don't take the time to try to comprehend what I'm doing and they just don't see the value in it. Go ahead, Clay. I wasn't. All right. uh, Thank you very much. I had far too many uh, comments coming in to me on that one. So I sure. wasn't paying that much attention for that one. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I was just going to say, you know, um, all the people who are listening to this on podcast, I, I'm sorry you missed out on all the potato puns in the chat. Um, we don't have time to <laughs> yes. call attention to all of them, but uh, you should be here I'm live. Sure. Can, so. I, I'm pretty sure Brendan missed his own unintentional puns when he was talking about how appealing certain varieties are. <laughs> yeah, that was not intentional. Yeah. I do have a question here from somebody whose mic isn't working. Do you have something else to say, Steve? Go ahead. No, you bet. Okay. All right. It says, do you work with uh, the producer when deciding cover crop species for yield and quality? This is from Liam Hamilton. Mm, I'm, what, I'm not sure what exactly he's asking with which producer, I'm with the, the, the owner of the livestock. Yeah, that'd be my guess. Um, so, yeah. So when, I mean, when I put that mixture together, on the grazing end of things. So, I mean, when I started off with cover crops, I had a certain mixture. And then when we started, wanted to bring the cattle in, I knew there were certain things I would have to change around. Um, one of them is I always used to have sorghum sedan in my, my cover crop mixes. And that made them nervous because of the timing of when they were going to be out there it was going to be during some potential frost. So it was no problem. I got rid of that one, brought in some millets in its place. So we replaced one warm season grass with another. Um, I worked with green cover seed. Um, talk to them quite a bit about what else can I do to really, I wanted a mixture that was still going to accomplish all the goals I wanted from the cover crop, but let's, if, if there's something I can add to add to the feed value, absolutely. I was in favor of that. Um, we brought in grazing collards, um, some brown midrim corn, some different things like that to really enhance the feed value of it. Um, every, I've had the same mixture the whole time now that I've had th these ranchers working, but that first year, I showed them my mixture so they knew exactly what I was going to be growing out there. And I asked them, is there anything else I need to take out? If there's anything you want me to bring in, I was very open to it. And they were very pleased with the mixture I'd had put together. Um, when we plugged it into the cover crop calculator that's on green cover seeds website, you know, he's got different parameters on there and it scored a 10.0 as far as grazing quality, 
and then did very well on all the other ones. So I, I feel really good about the, uh, the mixture we've got put together. All right. I think Larry's back with another question. If you're ready, go ahead, Larry. You got to unmute. Yeah, Larry's full of questions. Uh, what kind of compost do you use? I have compost for a living, so I was curious about the compost and how much are you putting per acre? I think you quoted that, but I didn't catch it. Right. So the compost we're using, so the guy that makes it, he's about five miles from us, but he's got to go quite a ways to get the manure. We don't really have any confined feedlots or anything near us. Uh, the main reason for that is we've had a historically high water table. When I was a kid, you could usually go out with a shovel and find the water table. Now it's about 35 feet deep, but we, he has to go about three hour drive to get the manure. So it's steer manure from a feedlot, brings that in. And then his carbon sources, he's got a lot of different carbon to access. Um, he's been using barley stubble. The guys will bail that off and they'll trade them for the compost. Um, he works with a sawmill and brings in a lot of sawdust. And then this year, um, you know, Colorado passed these laws and made hemp legal. And that has turned into a real disaster around here. So he's currently composting a lot of hemp, which I think will make some really, a really fine product. But he's just getting started on that one. Okay, cool. But you, you like the results you get from compost? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and you were asking about a rate. When we were just monoculture, uh, potato, barley rotation, I was putting three ton per acre every single year. When we switched, got away from the barley and went to the green manure rotation, I cut that in half. So I did three ton per acre every other year because I wasn't putting anything out there in front of the cover crop. We wait, would wait and put it on after the cover crop was done. As we brought in diversity and some different companion crops, all these different things, I was able to keep backing off. I went down to two ton per acre and then down to a ton and a half per acre. Currently, it depends a little bit on which field. I've got one field that's a little bit sandier. I like I still like to put about two ton of compost per acre every other year on that field. My other three have a higher loam content. I've been able to stabilize it about a ton and a half every other year. So pretty, pretty low rate. Yeah. Have you checked your uh, organic matter out of curiosity? Yeah, I mean, I pull, I pull all of your standard soil samples every spring. Um, keep in mind, I'm, I'm in a, a very arid climate, sandy soil, lots of soil disturbance. I've peaked at about 1.7, 1.8 on organic matter. And so a lot of people hear those numbers and they're disappointed. You know, they want to hear that I'm at 5%. And I don't yeah. think we'll, we're ever going to achieve that in this area. So when you hear 1.8, that may sound disappointing until you find out that most of the neighbors are usually between zero and 0 0.5. Mm -hmm. So I'm a, I'm double to triple what your standard potato farm is in this area for these conditions. It's all relative. Yes. Yep. It's, it's all relative. It depends okay. on the size of engine you have, <laughs> right? If your engine's a, a little Honda, you're not going to get that much out of it, but if it's a big, you know, power stroke, uh, you're going to get a lot more out of it. So Brendan's starting with a little Honda down there. That's all. The, the uh, cheap biological you can use is raw milk if you have a source for it. It's yeah. I, I've actually I've played around I've played around with that in my greenhouse, but we just don't have any dairies near us. So I, the, it was fine for a greenhouse. You know, I, the, there was a guy with a couple of cows. I could go get a gallon every week, but. As far as having enough volume to put out on the field, I, I can't even come close. Well, it, he it wants only, it full only, market value for it. It only takes two gallons per acre, so it's not that much, but it needs to be raw milk. That in, and yeah. molasses or brown sugar 
it's, I think it's fine, better than the biologicals I'm buying. I'm having better luck with raw milk and sugar. Sure. Thank you. Okay, up next, um, we have a question from Will. Uh, Will, if you're ready, I haven't seen you open your screen or unmute your mic, but uh, you're Well, hello, Will. Will used comments. to be one of my, Will was one of my uh, professors in college. Oh, it says uh, comments and observations from a green guy trying to expand his horizon. So I think he's got his mute mic, mic unmuted. So if you're ready to go, go ahead. While we wait for Will, I will ask the question that I've had written down since we started here. Um, I'm sure a lot of people would say that the buffer strips and the pollinator strips are wasted uh, area that you could be getting potato yield out of. Can you talk about the difference that those have made uh, just as far as uh, health and performance of the overall system there on your place, Brendan? Yeah, so that one's real easy for me to quantify and justify because since I'm growing certified seed, we have several inspections, so I get these plant counts out there. So for me, the entire reason I'm managing pests in my potatoes is we're managing the spread of virus. And I have the numbers to show that I'm able to manage this virus as well as the guys that are using heavy amounts of insecticides. So most of the other seed growers in this area are using crop oils with a, an insecticide added into it. And at the end of the growing season, they're spending about $200 per acre. So I'm saving $200 per acre and we're ending up with the same results. Now we've had some people try to not do anything to manage aphid and they've had a complete train wreck. So you have to do something to manage that, that, that aphid population. But I guess the point I'm making is I'm able to manage the aphid population just as well but so much more economically. Plus when you factor in the health of the people out in the field and everything else that, you know, you can kind of stack on, on that. So I, I can easily justify having that diversity out there. And for me, I think a lot of where people run into trouble too, is they hear about what I'm doing and they want to just put a buffer strip around that whole field and think that's good enough. The flower strips have their place in my, in my system, but it's only part of it. Because when I have, I, I put a flower strip right down the middle of the field and around the edge, then anywhere I have another little gap there, this crop establishes much earlier than my potato crop. So I start building my populations of beneficial insects, but those insects can only go so far from their food source. So with those strips aren't enough to manage everything. So I'm, I'm just have those strips out there to really build those populations. But then the potatoes start coming up along with the companion crops, you know, the buckwheat, faba beans out there are great for hosting beneficial insects. So now I have more food source throughout the entire field that allow the, the beneficials to go through the entire field. And that's truly what's allowing me to manage these pests. So I don't feel like the companion crop by itself is enough. I don't feel like the flower strips by themselves are enough. It really takes the, the relationship between the two to get true control because I have to have that early stage and then I have to have that food source throughout the entire field later on. And one advantage we really have with the aphid is the aphid are migratory. So they come into the valley. So we do have an opportunity to establish these beneficials before that migration comes in. Whereas a lot of other areas, if you're dealing with a Colorado potato beetle or something that's coming up from the soil, that's a whole nother set of challenges. I can add to that too, Clay. Um, again, I go back to that where I was talking about the edge. Um, we get too greedy 
right? We, we want to get 99% of that field under production and we lose sight of the balance of the system, right? My ideal piece of land would have maybe 70% production and then some riparian areas, some bush, some wetland. And, and then we get to have those interactions between those edges, the biodiversity. Um, as soon as you get that 99% mentality, then you have to start or sorry, the, the system starts to get out of balance. And now you have to start adding products and, and buying things and trying to control things that aren't there. And that's, um, go see Brendan. If you haven't seen it, go watch Brendan's presentation from the from the conference in 2019. Um, it's just a, a very a good description on how that interaction, how the mentality of that, you know, let's try and get 99% versus the mentality of let's aim for 80% production, but let's get more profit out of it. Um, uh, just that, that whole mentality, it, we're, we're thinking about it the wrong way. If we're trying to, you know, we got to wipe out every acre of bush so that we can get another acre of cropland. Um, we, we got to get away from that mentality because we end up going backwards down this, you know, this downward spiral that, uh, it never ending of buying products and inputs and chemicals and additives. And, um, I call them symptom solvers, right? We're looking for that magic bullet when really. The magic bullet is balancing the system so we don't need those magic bullets. Right. And one of the frustrations I run into constantly is everybody wants to know, will this system improve my yields? That's all they want to know is tonnage, tonnage, tonnage. Whereas our mindset is I'm going to maintain my yield, reduce my cost of production and improve quality. That's even better. So I'm improving my profit margin without necessarily improving our tonnage. And also we've been sorting a lot of seed and shipping a lot of seed right now. And it's amazing the quality of our crop now. The, the amount of sort out that we have is absolutely minimal. So it's not about the amount of potatoes we bring in from the field. It's how many potatoes do you have to sell at the end of the day? And that's where we, we really have a huge advantage. Okay, uh, I think next up is one of the last questions we're going to get to tonight. Uh, I think, Will, you'll have some time uh, as well if you want it. But uh, Friesens, if you want to go ahead and give your question, that'd be go ahead right now. Hi, Dwayne Friesen here from Northern British Columbia. I have a question, um, a gardening question. We have scab on our potatoes. Uh, what causes that? And uh, how can we uh, do something about that? So are you talking about common scab or powdery scab? Um, I'm not sure. It's just a scab that covers the, the tuber. Uh, it's real rough and dark. I, I'm right. not sure. Uh, it, it sounds to me like you're talking about common scab. And we, we deal a little bit with powdery scab here. Um, the only time I really see powdery scab flare up is when we have a real heavy water event right after vine desiccation. So you get that soil saturated at a real vulnerable time. So it's a, it's an airborne fungus that's in the soil and it just, these spores attack the, the skin and penetrate and it creates these pustules on there. But I think what you're talking about is common scab and that's not, I'm not as familiar with it. I have seen it here on the farm and it depends a little bit on the variety, but one place where I did see a lot of common scab early on is we had, we used to raise hogs and this was before we had the center pivot irrigation. And we had this one corral that used to stick out into where we are irrigated now. And so it was that one spot where we had that real heavy manure out there is where we saw that common scab. So I have heard about seeing common scab where a real heavy amount of manure was applied. 
So I don't know if that resonates at all with what you're seeing. Um, so a ways around that, I mean, having the manure composted, or if you can apply it in an area, let it be in there for a couple of years before you actually have the potatoes out there, that might help you out a little bit. Um, also, common scab, a variety plays a, a really big role there. Certain varieties never seem to get it, and other ones seem to be a lot more susceptible. Okay, is it something that can come in uh, with the potato seed or or not? Mm, I, I always think of it being more soil-borne. Um, now powdery scab, yeah, you plant a potato with powdery scab on it, you're asking for trouble. The common scab I've always thought of as being more soil borne. So I think the solution there is, is, is there's something going on there with the rotation. And I, that's why I just wonder if, uh, you're, if there's some raw manure being applied, if um, the timing on that might be. Yeah, we've, uh, we've put compost on in the past, but it's always well, well composted. Yeah. Okay. And I think, uh. I think just overall soil health tends to help with these problems, you know, getting lots of uh, diversity in that soil, microbial diversity, the more diversity you br bring into a system, it's harder to create an environment where any one disease is going to thrive. So I think having a, a nice long rotation, getting a lot of plant diversity out there, all these little things should help as well. Okay. Thank you very much. I really like what you're doing there. Um, we're cattle people as well here and, uh, doing the cover crop thing. Uh, it's lots of fun. Good. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you very much. So we're going to kind of shut things down for the evening. Um, don't run away because we have the after networking networking coming up next, but for now, I just like to kind of close out a little bit. I want to kind of go back to the start. Um, I know we're not all growing potatoes here, but I think Brendan is a, a an excellent example of what you can do. Um, in the, in the cropping side. So I just like to kind of review kind of what we talked about tonight a little bit. Um, polycultures within your crop. So interceding, he's got six or seven different species with his potato crops. Okay. There's, there's a concept. How can we adapt that to our farm? How do we, how do we in integrate that in what you're doing on your farm? Don't think about Brendan's farm. Think about your farm. Um, cover crops in between, right? Uh, we talk about a crop rotation where, you know, you're not allowed to have the same crop every four years. Well, Brendan has two crops, but both crops are polycultures. So, you know, the, the concept of one monoculture creating a disease is eliminated. So how do you think about that with your crops, right? I mean, up in, in my area, canola is a big one. They get club root. Okay, so if, if canola is a monoculture, yeah, you're going to have more club root. If we have a polyculture in with that canola, is it going to be an, an issue? And if our alternate year is a 16 or 20 species cover crop, is that even going to be an issue? Right? Like I think a lot of our diseases and our pests that come in, it's because of the monoculture, right? Uh, Brendan doesn't have a problem with rotation because he never has a monoculture. So how do you implement that in your thinking on your farm with your types of crops? Okay. Um, we didn't talk a whole bunch about it, about it, but I know Brendan in his area, he really works with the water cycle, right? Building carbon, building organic matter. Um, water is the most important nutrient on your farm by far, right? For every 50 pounds of nitrogen you need to grow a crop, you need 10,000 pounds of water. So how do we build, you know, water holding capacity in your soil? Um, that's a big part of it. 
another thing that we talked about with Brendan's crops is building biodiversity, pollinator strips, edge, uh, more pollinators, more insects, more beneficial predators. Um, how do you build that in your operation? Right. Okay. Brendan can tell you all about potatoes and, and how to do that, but how do you manage that in your crop, in your canola, in your wheat? Um, and the other one is recycling nutrients. Okay, that's what the livestock come in for. They're recycling nutrients. So the one the one issue I have with uh, crop farming is that we're exporting our nutrients all the time. Okay, how do we still sell a crop, but you know, be able to to recycle as much of it as possible? So if we could have, for example, like I talked about the kerns of wheat, um, it's a perennial grain crop that we could grow. Could we come in and combine it? Then we could graze. Like I'd I'd seed it as a polyculture. Um, come in and combine it then come in and graze it, recycle what's left over, get some biology added, and then do the same thing next year, right? How do we, how do we manage these principles that Brendan talked about here today on your farm? Um, that's kind of what I'd like to leave everybody with today. So I'm going to give Brendan one more chance just to kind of close out. Uh, Brendan, if you have any uh, links or, you know, Facebook page or uh, uh, please feel free to put them in the, in the chat and just give us a little bit of a close out what you, uh, what, what, what would you leave with the, the grain farmers from up here? What was your, you know, give them a, a tidbit or something to think about. Well, yeah, I think you've shared a lot of the links already. Uh, BrendanRocky.com is a good resource, a uh, good way to contact me. Um, a lot of good information there. Um, I guess I'll, I'll share one little, one of my favorite stories with, I, I, I was had the opportunity to go to France and give a presentation. And I was talking to a lot of potato farmers there. And the guy that presented before me was from the Caribbean and he was growing bananas and he was using diverse cover crops to manage his pest problem. And so these French farmers were sitting there in the, in the crowd and they were kind of, you could tell they were kind of skeptical. I was like, Oh, I don't know. sounds like a good idea, whatever. I'm not sure if I believe them. And then I got up there and here I was a potato farmer farming in the desert. And I was managing my pest insects by using diverse cover crops. And so the fundamentals were identical, even though the environments we were from could not be any more different. The crops we were growing were drastically different. The environment, the rain, everything about it could not be more different, but we were using the exact same fundamentals and seeing the exact same success. So that's one thing I always like really emphasizing is just don't, don't pay too much attention about the exact details of what I'm doing. Focus on the fundamentals. It's really up to you to decide how do I apply those fundamentals to my operation? Because even potato farms, you go to different areas. I mean, you might be in an area that's not irrigated or a heavier soil, and there's going to be these little quirks that you have to kind of figure out how to make it work on your, your land. But I mean, diversity, I mean, that's one of the biggest ones. I have yet to see a situation where really bringing in and managing diversity correctly has been a bad thing. It always ends up in positive results, but, it, but there's that key component of it, right? So even it's all about managing it correctly. Absolutely. If you do it incorrectly, you can create a train wreck there and, and create some new problems. But if you manage it correctly, I've never seen diversity be a, a bad thing. So that's one thing I, I just, diversity plays such a huge role on our farm. Excellent. Thank you, Brendan. So I'd just like to thank uh, Clay as well for being our host tonight. Um, did a fantastic job, Clay. Great. Awesome. Um, we do have a bit of a U.S. influence here tonight because both Clay and uh, Brendan are from uh, the U.S. and we're up here in Canada. So I did want to share my background here just for you all. 
Yeah, everybody on the podcast <laughs> won't get this at all, will they? But um, off, welcome to know. the Great White North. I mean, we can get pretty cold up here, so appreciate that. Um, and thank you very much to the Gateway Research Organization. Um, without them, we wouldn't be having this uh, this platform and 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 doing this session. So thank you to them, and the Great Wooded Forge Association again. Thank you very much, Brenda, if you're still on here. Um, thank you very much for everything that you're doing. And uh, yeah, um, we will close it out for tonight and we will get into the after networking networking now. And that's where all the fun happens. So everybody on a podcast, you're missing out. Thanks and God bless. <laughs>